Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Beautiful Minds. My name is Martin and I'm joined by Staz and Natalie Allport. Natalie, you're a former national team snowboarder, current crossfitter and lifelong entrepreneur. You started your own digital marketing agency called 93 Agency and you've got over a decade's worth of experience in helping athletes build brands and businesses. We can't wait to learn more about your story and your success tips. But first of all, welcome to Beautiful Minds. How are you? Hey, I am great. And thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm doing well. I, I think it's a Friday today. It's been a, you know, a great week in quarantine life. They all kind of blur together. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Just uh, enjoying the storm today. Was <laughs> oh. there a storm outside? I didn't even know. We got some sun over here, which is nice. It was storming uh, yesterday and this morning. I thought it was going to rain all day today, but actually we've got some sun and it's going to go into tomorrow. So I'm excited. So yeah. Natalie, um, tell us a bit more about your, your history in terms of snow snowboarding and injuries. Yeah. Uh, so I started snowboarding actually fairly late compared to my peers. Like most snowboarders coming up now, they're already making a name for themselves when they're like 13. And I started, I think I was about 12 when I actually started snowboarding. I used to play basically every single sport that I possibly could up until I was, well, actually I continued playing every sport I could um, even to this day, but eventually I had to pick one and hockey was my main sport. I played competitive hockey. And then uh, I had always been into skateboarding and that whole culture. And uh, my family, we lived in New Jersey for two years. We were born and raised in Vancouver. So we were ski kids being around the mountains. And then, yeah, we had two year break kind of from everything, took up skateboarding, came back, got really into hockey. And then one day we went to the hill and I s decided that I wanted to switch my rental skis for a snowboard. So uh, yeah, my family ditched me <laughs> from then on out because they all ski and uh, they didn't feel like uh, me holding them back. So I had to teach myself. I was lucky that the first day um, we had a family friend who was an instructor and he showed me a couple things. I thought I'd be good right away and I was awful, completely awful. <laughs> I think I just tumbled down the hill over and over again. Um, but yeah, I fell in love, never looked back and just got really into snowboarding. And after a couple years of managing both snowboarding and competitive hockey, I eventually had to pick one because when you're playing competitive hockey, it's almost every day of the week and you don't have a chance ever to go out to the uh, to the ski hills or the resorts. So yeah, I decided to switch to the dismay of my parents because hockey is, you know, there's kind of a formal route and especially in Canada. And at the time, my form of uh, snowboarding didn't have any, you know, Olympic potential. It, it, there was X Games and things like that and there still is, but um, slope style snowboarding, all the jumps and the rails wasn't in the Olympics yet. But yeah, I pursued it, went all in on, on snowboarding and uh, just kept practicing in my backyard everywhere I could because we don't live near like large mountains. And uh, yeah, eventually in 20, uh, 2011, I made the junior national team and I spent four years as part of the national team program. But yeah, going back to injuries, um, there's there's ton in, in snowboarding and in any sport. I think every athlete's, you know, face different injuries, but in snowboarding especially, it's very unpreventable because in soccer, different sports, you might twist your knee or you get, you know, you're, you're running, you're changing direction. There's a lot of things that can happen, overuse injuries, but in snowboarding, like you're going to fall and you're going to fall hard. When you're hitting 80 foot jumps, you go a little bit too fast. All of a sudden you're going hundred feet and the landing has disappeared and you're like going even further down. So there's a lot of big crashes. And uh, yeah, I've had a, a ton of injuries from concussions, broken tailbones, ribs, shoulders, you name it, I've probably broken it. 
Wow. We've got the doctor here so he can uh, <laughs> confirm <laughs> if you're missing anything. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is um, even when you've made the team and even when you were at that level, you still get those injuries because you always practice something new. You always try to improve yourself and it's just an inevitable part of the sport. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. Like I, I have people who ask me all the time um, for tips starting snowboarding and they're always worried that they're going to like, you know, um, they're just starting and they're going to fall on their butt or they get the broken wrist. That's pretty, pretty common, I think, with snowboarding injuries. Wow. But although that's common with the, the beginners, I think it gets worse as the better that you get. Like you see a lot of the elite athletes at some of the top competitions, you get to those events and there's multiple people being taken away on a stretcher or something because you're hitting such big of jumps that even even though you've trained and you know the tricks like you're going to catch an edge the conditions are going to be off you're going to get a wind gust there's there's always going to be things that happen and so yeah they almost get worse the better that you get actually i find that really amazing because you know you're going into the sport and you're thinking i know i'm going to break multiple things but i'm still going to go and do it so the pleasure of doing it is obviously so much greater than the, the pain of, you know, breaking all those things. So what, what, why is that? What is it about the snowboarding that, that you think is, has the edge? Of, yeah, I think it's a culture thing. Like, I think it's almost the same in all action sports. Like you're addicted to the rush and like the adrenaline that it, it doesn't matter what you have going on, but you, you just push through. And like, if you die doing your sport, like you die doing what you love and, um, unfortunately, when you get out of that mindset, you can no longer compete at that high level. But I think there's like a little bit of madness to it when, you know, you're addicted to that rush. And I think snowboarding actually was one of the first things that taught me like about mindfulness, because you have to be so in the moment when you're doing sports like that, like so flow that you forget everything and you're just completely present. And I think like in life you get, you know, anxiety and all these things that go on. And so you almost use like that sport as your escape. Yeah, yeah, I know the feeling. I um, yeah, I spoke to a few athletes before, and they always say that they find their their discipline as a form of escapism. And then I think when you approach that retirement stage, I think that's when you kind of start to get anxiety, I guess, because you're not sure what's your new form of escapism. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent true. I actually like the the summer that I retired or the spring that I retired. I yeah, I got a lot of panic attacks. I started having um, a lot of anxiety, and I fell into a bit of a depression. And so I I sought out like a professional therapist to go to, and he was a former um, very competitive soccer player. So we had a really good relationship right off the go. And one of the things that he said was, "It's like your body has all that adrenaline that it's used to like pumping out." for whatever, eight hours a day that you're on the mountain and all of a sudden you've gone to nothing and your body is looking like, how are you going to put out all that energy? And so it's putting it out in the way of like stress, anxiety, making little things into big things. Yeah. So it was an interesting concept to think from the scientific perspective that it's true. Like my body was so conditioned to this for years and all of a sudden it's like, there's no place for that to go. And I had to build, you know, those systems in my own real life apart from sport. So when you had those injuries, did you have the same feeling? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say so, actually, because I think I always knew I was going to bounce back. Like, I think okay. during the sport itself, I was pretty good about, you know, looking at injuries as a way to improve something else. So, uh, you know, in a long season, you get an injury, you have a little bit of a break, like it sucks, you miss a couple of events, but you can work on something else. You can work on your fitness, or for me, I was taking university at the same time, so I can work on my courses. Like, I had something to distract me. Yeah. Not that I didn't when I retired, but it's almost like, 
when you have that injury, you know, okay, in a month, in two months, whatever it is, I'm going to come back and it'll all be okay. Like this, my life is still the same. I'm just off for now. But when you retire, your future is looking totally different and almost like an unknown. Yeah, yeah. And um, so with regards to the injuries itself, I mean, how did you approach it psychologically other other than just saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bounce back. Did you have another kind of um, sense of fear? I know we talked about that earlier in the week. Yeah, it, injuries are tough. And I think, you know, even I'm, I'm 26 now and I'm still learning how to handle it all because like in CrossFit, I, I have injuries all the time as well. But the cool thing is like you hurt your shoulder, you can squat and you can do other movements and snowboarding, you're kind of off. So for me, like when I was off, uh, I was lucky I had really good coaches who would just be like, okay, well, this is the visualization tools that you need to be using and practicing. And I think as, as a young athlete, uh, there were still so many tools that I had yet to build. So like I still had to build the whole mindset thing. I still had to build the whole visualization and learning meditation, all those things. So it gave me an opportunity to work on those things while I was off. But I think now that I've gotten older and like I know all those tools that are incorporated in my daily routine, it starts almost being more difficult because there's not like a whole new thing to dive into when you're injured. But you are able to focus on these other things and almost look at it like, you know, this is a time where the lights are off, you're, you're in your own home or you're in the gym or whatever it is and putting in the work with no one watching and you get to make like when you come back from that injury, you get to like surprise people. It's, it's much yeah. cooler to have that like comeback than to just have a career with no blips, nothing, nothing happened. Yeah. I guess it's those ups and downs that makes it special. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And it, it can be hard to accept when you're in the down moment, but I think after you go through so many, you start appreciating it. Yeah. Did you have any mentors? Um, yeah, like my, my, I have really good coaches and yeah. that's something that I really appreciate. And they were really tough coaches. Um, you know, a lot of people have those coaches, especially when it comes to snowboarding, like the whole concept of coaches was pretty new to me. I grew up here with the small mountains. I didn't, you know, travel to these bigger events. And all of a sudden I started noticing that there was like full teams of athletes. So they had coaches and the whole crew. And even though it's an individual sport, they were all like supporting each other. And that was, you know, I grew up playing team sports, but I didn't know that was possible in snowboarding. And so then once I got on the junior national team, it was part of like, um, like our insurance and everything that we actually had to have uh, coaches that were accredited with, you know, the association. So I had to uh, like vet out coaches. My parents helped me decide what team. And I actually moved about eight hours from where I lived to where there was a coaching team. I moved in with the parents of one of my coaches, which was really cool. They were both school teachers and they were awesome, awesome people to stay with. So it was kind of like I was boarding with them basically for the, for the season. And then just getting my coaches, they would pick me up on the way to the hill. So I got that extra time with them. It it really opened my mindset to having a good coach because when I grew up uh, playing hockey, I had some good coaches and I had some, some bad coaches that were in it for the politics of, you know, getting their kid ahead or whatever it was. And so having these, these coaches that, you know, I say when I first joined, I was pretty raw talent. So I, t- I didn't know like the nuances to actually how to properly even turn my snowboard yet. I'm hitting these 60 foot jumps and doing different things. So my entire first season, they rebuilt my snowboarding. And that was such a humbling experience for a 17 year old to go through when you just want to be doing the next trick. And they said, no, we're not learning any new tricks this season, maybe at the end, but we're actually going to like rebuild all the proper, uh, 
snowboarding, you know, um, how to turn properly, how to use your edge properly, how to properly take off the jump, how to use your hips when you're taking off. And um, having coaches that really focused on that, as well as the life skills behind it, were huge for me. So, yeah, I think most of my my mentors when I was snowboarding were my coaches themselves. And and then just being surrounded by all the like-minded people and different athletes are is amazing as well. Yeah. And can you remember anything specific about, say, one of your coaches that made him a really good mentor for you? Yeah. One of my coaches, he's actually the um, the coach of the national team now in the Olympic team. And um, oh. And yeah, and because when we first joined the team, the, the program was pretty new. So even though we were part of the national team program, we had to hire our private coaches still. So, and actually up to my last year, I had half coaching from the national team, half coaching from private. So we would do like camps, national team camps. But aside from that, everyone pretty much still had their private coaching. Um, and I think it was just because the sport was fairly, fairly new. Yeah. Um, so after I retired, he got chosen there. But he was only a couple of years older than I was. So his mentorship was, was really cool dynamic. And most of my coaches were not too much older than I was, which was really cool to see because you could, I feel like you see someone 10 years older than you and they're, you automatically assume that they're much more mature. So there's a different dynamic, but when you see someone only like maybe two or three years older than you, and they're at this level of maturity that you strive to, to be at, you om it almost makes you want to be like that sooner because you don't see that huge age gap or that huge difference between you. It's not like, okay, in 10 years from now, I'll be as mature and put together as this person is. You're like, okay, no, I can be like this now. Yeah. And uh, you when did you retire exactly? So, yeah, I, I retired in 2015. So five years ago, pretty much... Yeah, pretty much five years ago to this month, wow. I would say, yeah. And so, what, so why did you retire so young? Yeah, so a lot of people ask me that because they're like, why do you use the word retire? Because you would think it's like, you know, you're in your 30s or something like that, especially wow. in snowboarding. like More like 40s or 50s or 60s. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but in snowboarding, your knees probably don't last till 40, 50 or 60. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, the people always ask that. They're like, yeah, you retired from snowboarding, like, what was yeah. I, like 21 or yeah, something like that, 21. Yeah, I guess so. And it, for me, it was injuries mostly. And then there was also just a different headspace that I became in. So when I was entering my last season, I had started doing CrossFit as a form of cross training. And I felt for me, like when I was snowboarding, a lot of my peers were um, partying. And my thing was like, the competition's over, I'm going to the gym. Like I didn't win, like I'm training, I'm, I'm trying to get better. And especially because I didn't come from a family with a ton of money, a ton of resources or live near these resorts. So everyone else was like being able to afford better camps, go to uh, New Zealand and Australia in the summer when it's like their winter and all these things that I wasn't able to. So my whole thing was like, I need to go all in on any little thing that I can improve during this time. So I was so strict and regimented that I almost felt like all, all my snowboard peers and friends, they were all like some of my best friends, but I felt a little bit like different because I wasn't necessarily into all the same things of like the whole scene and the culture of snowboarding. Like I, I was, but I, I also had this like strict mentality about me where I actually, when I turned 19, I didn't drink for two years. And that's like in the snowboard culture, that's you're, you're, you're pretty much out partying all the time. And um, so, yeah. So when I found CrossFit, I kind of found like a family of people who, all felt like um, really accepting of who I was. They were really into like that whole thing about like 
putting in a ton of work in your life to improve all the other areas of your life. And it was something where I found like the work that you put in equals the work that you get out of it. And a lot of sports, there's so many politics and other things that, you know, you can work as hard as you want in snowboarding and you get this bad fall and like that just happens. And now you're out for a whole season or there's different politics about who's invited to each competition. Or I was at a competition where, um, one of the the whole judging crew of the competition was actually run by the coaches of this other team and so I won the competition and then got called back and they told me no you got third place and it was because of funding they wanted funding to go to their athlete so they changed all the results so like there's so many politics versus you know all of a sudden I found this group of people who you know were were really into sports and even they're all from all walks of life so I found this kind of family and then all of a sudden I went back to my my season and uh, everyone was like all excited about my season. I had a whole new group of people who were like excited to follow my season. And for some reason, something just didn't feel right. I was, I was in Whistler. I was living my like 13 year old kid's dream. And I just felt like I wanted to be home and with my family. And like, I think it was just four years of the grind that I just, I, yeah, I had found this new thing. I was doing university online. I'd already started my business. I had a few different things on the go. So I said, you know what, I'm going to ignore this feeling. It's just me being crazy. I think as an athlete, you have those highs and lows where, you know, one month you're like, screw this, I want to quit. And then the next day you're like, no, 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 no. I, that was just me being crazy. Yeah. So yeah, so I wrote out the, most of the season and then I got to a competition in the start of 2015 where um, my friend, she fell on her ribs uh, and she got internal bleeding and I was the first person on site. And this had happened, something similar had happened to her where she dislocated her hip a season prior. And actually my parents stayed with her at the hospital there because her parents weren't able to uh, make the trip. And just seeing her in that pain and like she was spitting up blood and she was saying she didn't know whose blood that was. And like, it was so crazy that I started going almost into shock myself. I'm trying to, like I'm holding her mouth card. I'm trying to prevent her from going into shock. And I'm calling a friend saying like, you need to talk me down. I'm freaking out right now. My, you know, my friend is forgetting where she is. And it's, it was like an eye-opening moment of this could be me. And I could be, my parents could be the ones having to go to the hospital and see me, you know, spitting up blood and getting blood drained from my body and, and all these things. And so seeing her mom ended up driving about eight hours, maybe 16 hours, I think it was actually, to, to get there and seeing her talk about how she might have a conversation with her daughter about maybe it's time to step back. Just like, you know, I think I spent the whole like 16 hours driving back home crying <laughs> and just like thinking about my whole like life choices. And then since then, my mentality just wasn't in it. It was like, I was scared. Like my coaches would say, okay, we need to work on this trick today. And I would like catch my edge and hit my head a little bit. And usually like when I was younger, you would ignore those things. You're like, who cares? Like keep going. But I was like, no, you know, I hit my head. I need to go down for the day. And I started making these excuses that just didn't feel like me. And so my coaches, you know, I think they were starting to recognize it, but they didn't, they didn't want to be like rude about it, but they were, they kept pushing me and I kept making excuses and I didn't like being that person. And so I realized that I think, you know, I had all these injuries. I broke my ribs that season, later in the season, a few different things. And I realized, you know what, I think it's time for me to pull out. I had the whole season where I gave myself the chance to see if I was still mentally in it and still wanted to do this. And yeah, so I decided, I told them, okay, don't, don't uh, put me on the national team this next year. I'm going to take a break, but a break usually means um, we'll see how it goes, but it's pretty hard to come back with the level of progression that happens like between every competition actually. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because those are the things that you don't normally think of, you know, the wider impacts on your family, you know, seeing your friends and everyone else uh, with injuries. I never even thought about it before, before you said it. Yeah, and I think it's it's unique in that sport because you, you've seen, like probably in the news, you see maybe once a year, there's always some big news story, like global news story, where there's an athlete who, you know, becomes paraplegic or becomes this, and they're usually like an action sport athlete, mountain bike or wakeboarder, whatever it is. And um, yeah, like you really, you can't let that go to your head when you're, when you're that type of athlete. But um, I, I did, and I had all these other passions that I wanted to pursue, and every day I'd wake up and be like, Oh, I really want to work on this like business project or I really want to do this, but I can't until I retire. And I started thinking like, well, my goals have always been not just limited to sport. It's also with, with business. And yeah, it, it you, sometimes you just make decisions for what's, what's next and you, what's next comes sooner than you thought. So you retired at 21 and what have you been doing since then? So you've mentioned you went into CrossFit and how has that been uh, going? Yeah, so yeah, I dove into CrossFit super quickly. Um, uh, I, I always like to, to be the one who was at the gym and, and training. And actually, a year after I retired, I made a fun trip out west to uh, Whistler with one of my friends. And she was a former national, national team snowboarder as well. And uh, we stayed at the national team housing. And I went to, the, I asked if I could go to the gym. So you're supposed to only go to the gym if you're, um, if you have like your national team card. But I went and the manager of the gym said, oh, I know your name. You're that girl that everyone said loves to be in here at the gym more than on snow. And I was like, oh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> and so, yeah, so they let me in and let me train for the week while I was there and, and just hang out with everybody. And uh, yeah, so I, I think I had already gotten really into it. And for me, like if I had found CrossFit as a kid, I think that would have been my thing. Like now there's CrossFit kids and CrossFit teens. And I was just thinking like as a kid, I was always um, really, really lean, but muscular and really athletic. Like snowboarding was the only sport that came really difficult. Every other team sport came, came fairly easily to me. And I was like, gym class was my favorite. All those things. I loved doing like the beep test. I loved the push-up test. Like everything. I loved all that stuff. So I think if I found CrossFit earlier, I, I would have been so into it as a kid. But yeah, I, I started getting more into it. And um, uh, I started trying to qualify for competitions. I think because of my background, instead of just doing it for fun, I was like, no, I, I completely switched. So I was like, okay, well, this is my new thing because my identity was still so attached to being an athlete. So it's taken me up until like probably this last year or so to really realize, no, like I have my business. I have all these other things going on. My identity doesn't have to be, I'm an athlete in something and I just have to keep, you know, switching sports per se. But yeah, last year I went to, uh, actually at this time last year, I was in Asia at the, uh, in Shanghai for the Asia CrossFit Championships. And uh, last February of last year, I was in London for uh, Strength and Depth, which is another CrossFit um, event. So yeah, I've done some pretty high level events with um, uh, like CrossFit Games competitors and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then I hurt my shoulder last year. I was in Bali and uh, crashed my motorbike. And so, yeah, my shoulder's taken a long time to uh, recover, but I've just been enjoying doing fitness for fun, which is probably good for me mentally. And um, yeah, just, just having fun with doing sports recreationally and just for my mental and physical health. But I think I'll eventually like to do another competition soon, but everything is pretty much on pause now anyway. So it gives me a good chance to keep rehabbing the shoulder. Yeah. 
the other thing I was thinking about, so you mentioned that you when when you were doing the snowboarding, uh, so the mental aspect of it, you're you know your coaches they had to be you said they had to be certified in mindfulness or what? No, they had to be certified like with the the Canadian Snowboard Association. So they had to have like all their coaching credentials to be able to for us to like have the insurance to um, to see, compete. But you didn't have to have any psychological types of credentials for, for like no. coaching you like from a mental point of view yeah i i don't know i think the coaching courses do really dive into the mental side of like how to approach an athlete to keep them engaged in the sport and like wanting to to get to the next level and train but i don't think it's yeah i don't know how deep they dive into sports psychology i do my coach was really good about you know really pushing visualization and mindfulness and all that kind of stuff but i don't think they have any specific credentials yeah and uh, do you still use that for um, for CrossFit? Do you you know do you listen to anything? Do you go to any seminars or anything like that to keep yourself uh, in the right mindset? Yeah, um, mindset has become such a huge part of my life. Like I actually almost considered going back to school for a master's in sports psychology because I was so interested in it. Um, when I took my university degree, I had a ton of electives that I could fill up. And um, for some reason, like instead of taking them all in marketing, which I wanted to, the way that my course was structured or my schooling was structured was that I didn't have like any other marketing courses that I could have added. So I filled it all up with psychology courses. So yeah, I dove really deep into psychology courses. I loved taking them. It was super fun. And then I just, since then for the last, yeah, like six years, I've spent so much time just diving into mindset and reading different books, a ton of different sport books, and then just general mindset and mindfulness books, um, as well as just, you know, podcast videos, whatever it is. I'm, I'm all about it. I try to uh, meditate daily. Um, I have this cool device. It's called a Muse and it's like a neurofeedback device. So while you're meditating, it gives you sounds of the weather and you can see if your brain is active. It'll like, you can have different settings. So if you're at the beach, the waves get like really heavy or if it's raining, it starts like being like thunder and then you can quickly calm down, which I really like because it's almost like a game. So for me to sit still for like 30 minutes and meditate is pretty difficult, but I, I challenge myself to do it because I know it's, it's important for me, but to have this device that gives me that feedback in the moment so I can quickly recalibrate instead of, you know, your thoughts drift off maybe for five minutes and all of a sudden you realize you've had five minutes where you've just been in thought you can quickly do it in a few seconds with this so it's it's been fun to use i, I started using that like maybe six months ago so which device is this have you heard of it says it's, it's called a muse yeah. muse wow yeah is that the brand or is that just the name of the device like uh the brand it's like a headband and it has like these nerve i think it has a sensor behind each ear and okay. across the forehead yeah where can you get those on amazon or um i don't i think maybe you can on amazon i got it from best buy which is like a canadian okay. like um tech sh store yeah i'm pretty sure you can get anything on amazon these days yeah, yeah i, yeah, I mean if, if you recommend it i think it's something that could be beneficial especially now during quarantine i think meditation coming very useful yeah. yeah yeah like i loved using like the guided meditations but this one was really cool so now i try to vary it up like um my my crossfit coach that i had last season he was really big into um doing meditation right after the workout especially because i would do two sessions a day so um 
and because I have tried to do some work in between. And so I found that I would get home and crash. Like I would just be so tired. So his, his idea behind that was like, well, you know, you're all hyped up from training and all of a sudden by the time you get home, you crash. So what if we can like lower you naturally or like through your meditation post training. So then you get home, you eat, you keep, you know, you can do your work. You don't have like this crash and need to nap and then get back to your training later. So we would do 10 minutes of just, it was just counting my breaths. I'd set a timer for 10 minutes after every single day's morning training. Um, and if I had time, I would do it after both trainings. And that was super easy for me to follow as well. So I tried to mix it up with like breath training, using the device, um, doing something like a headspace is cool too. Yeah, it's amazing how much you can do with your breathing. I'm reading this book at the moment called The World's Fittest Book. And I don't know if you know Ross Edgeley. He talks about immuno immunology a lot in his book. And uh, he's a sports scientist. So he, he went and collaborated with a guy called Wim Hof. Oh, um, I love Wim Hof. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So he, he uses a lot of his techniques to kind of keep his immune system strong because he does back-to-back -back marathons. He does triathlons with things strapped to his body. Uh, he pushes cars around and he does all oh, these crazy, crazy, crazy things. Yeah. And um, oh, so awesome. it's, it's interesting you mentioned about breathing and how you can actually calibrate your, your endorphins and release them more slowly so that you don't crash um halfway through the day before your second workout i think that's really mm -hmm. yeah, really strong message yeah no i really love the wim hof stuff i've been trying to do the cold showers every day um oh, yeah. and yeah i had i've done like two ice baths throughout this quarantine so far the only issue is like i don't have a good place to do it here <laughs> we went to my cottage and the water was two degrees so i was able to do it there just by going in the lake and i think it's still cold so if i go this weekend i'll be able to do it again but um yeah, like I, I, if I had an ice bath, like a like a tub or something, I've been I've been trying to get one. It, I would I would be really happy. <laughs> and we used to have hydrotherapy tubs at the national team center, and it would be like a hot tub and a cold, and we would go between them. And then um, we used to joke that on our off days, we're like, finally, it's the day we can just do the hot tub. Like we can just enjoy it. But we always would remember how good we felt that after the cold. That even on the rest days, like we would we would all week talk about our rest day. We're just gonna hot tub, and we get there, we look at each other. We're going back in the cold. <laughs> so you already have a happy relationship with the cold, I guess, from the snowboarding days and everything else. Yeah, I've been trying yeah. to get people on it. And uh, yeah, I, we, I did a lot of cold tubbing. And even I remember I had a, a foot injury one year snowboarding and it like was really prevalent. It kept coming back like every competition. And so uh, at the hotels, I would actually spend all day while everyone was training. I didn't want to risk my foot being re-injured in the training. So I had to miss the training and just kind of like show up on game day. And um, I was doing, yeah, the hot and cold contrast and everything in the tub all day while everyone was out riding. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more progress in that area with breathing and cold therapy, because I think looking at you and your injuries, I think, I don't know about you, Stas, as a doctor, but if, if I had that many injuries, I don't think I'd be doing any sports again. Um, so <laughs> I think this, this, this breathing and uh, cold therapy, it's, it's really powerful. It must do something yeah. to the body. I mean, do you know what I, I actually find about what you say it's injuries or for example, say if I'm really busy for a couple of days and I don't say I don't exercise for a week for whatever reason, which uh, is unusual at, at this point in time, but say it happens, then it's, I find it quite difficult to come back because when you come back, you're like, you're not as good as you were a week ago. And mentally, yeah. it's quite difficult because you're thinking, oh, wow, I have to get back to that same level now. And then 
say it happens again and again and again. And as I know, I think mentally it's it's quite difficult. And if, if you're out for a long time, say you know for a couple of months, it must be uh, much more difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had one year actually where when when I did hurt that foot, that the doctors kept misdiagnosing it. So what actually happened was like the fat pad in my heel basically exploded. And so they, what they described to me was it was like a grapefruit and then the sections of the grapefruit basically aren't there anymore, holding the fat in the little sections. But what I thought it was was a bruised heel, which a lot of my peers had, had gotten before just from like landing so hard on your feet. It's pretty normal. Um, so yeah, I kept treating it as that, thinking that it's going to get better, going to get better. I had physios that would dig into it. I was in uh, Turkey for a competition and I had a physio digging his thumb into my foot and it was so painful. There's like tears in my eyes. Oh, even thinking about it, it was so bad. Like my foot was purple and he's digging in because he's like, this is going to help you be able to ride tomorrow. Well, <laughs> at the end of the season, I, I was able to, uh, my doctor here, she was really good. And she referred me right away to go get an MRI and every, everything. And like some people wait years here to get an MRI. Like we have free healthcare, which is great, but the lineups can be long. So I was really lucky. Immediately got the MRI and everything to try to figure out what was going wrong. She had a doctor um, that, that wanted to help me. He was, um, uh, he was a surgeon and um, he was really specializing in sports. He worked with a lot of different national teams, I guess. And he was in Thailand for, I don't know if it was his honeymoon or like he was with his family and his wife. And he actually had like the x-rays, the MRIs sent to him so that he could quickly get back to me. I, he just took interest in the case, I guess. And he found there was a bone chip in my ankle, but I actually never had ever felt it. So like it could have happened years earlier. So he put me in a cast right away. And then um, when he got back, we checked at the foot and he said he'd never seen anything like it, took it to another surgeon. They said the only person that they've seen it in was they fell like three stories out of a building, broke like their hip, their knee, everything. Six months later, they were like, hey, my heel hurts. I can't really walk on it. So I was super lucky. I think that I had the strength built that I didn't hurt everything up the chain. I just hurt the foot. And um, yeah, that was really, really, really lucky. But immediately he got me like these, this different like really strong prescription anti-inflammatory creams. And I would go to physio and every day I would like ultrasound them into my foot. He was like all these weird things. He was even considering like putting Botox into my foot. It was really weird. <laughs> like it was, it was kind of one of those interesting injuries. And um, after the whole summer of, you know, kind of being off my foot, doing, going to physio every single day, starting to squat, train, you know, slowly got back into it. I was able to keep riding the next season, but I didn't find out until probably six months after I was better that he had actually called my physio, like, to discuss the whole rehab plan, and he had told her that he didn't think I'd ever be able to jump again, but what was really cool was they didn't tell me that, <laughs> so I, I feel really lucky that I was able to get over that, and just how I was able to still go to all those events throughout the year, even though I kept getting re-injured at all of them and, and make it back. And that, you know, no one ever told me that because I think that would have been a kind of a depressing thought and might've prevented being able to push through. Yeah. That sounds painful. <laughs> <laughs> it was not fun. Stas, what do you make of that as a doctor? So I had to, I don't know, to be honest with you, because sports medicine is so, it's so different to like the general, you know, cohort of patients that you see in the hospital, because right. just the way you land, the way, like the things that you do are just so different to what the general population does. So, yeah. so the injuries are different as well. So it's not something I'm uh, very familiar with, but I think it's, 
it's something that's very, very interesting. And especially, you know, having all these weird and different problems that you don't normally see, you probably do see more in uh, sports people because they do such uh, a variety of things. Yeah, like with the Botox in the foot, right? I mean, yeah, when he that. told me that, I was like, what? And then yeah. the craziest part too was he said that like trying to freeze the area would be so painful and everything. He's like, you would probably have to go across the street, grab a whole bunch of beers, take them, then I would inject it. I was like, oh, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Luckily, we didn't get to that step, so. Yeah. That is interesting. So going more towards the lifestyle now, and you mentioned that when you went to the CrossFit side and you started competing with them and joining that community, I know they've got a very strong community. Um, yeah. So I can imagine that they've probably opened you with, uh, welcomed you with open arms because people get the impression that it's an individual sport, but if you've ever been to a CrossFit box, you'll know that it's very much team orientated. Like no one leaves a box until the last person finishes that type of mentality. Right. Um, so how is that different to snowboarding? Do you feel more on your own in snowboarding? Um, uh, you know what? Snowboarding does have a good culture where like everyone is, is friends. Like they're all homies behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Like CrossFit was cool because you can do it anywhere. So like I'm in my, you know, right near my house, I can drive, go to the gym and like have that elite athlete experience just right there versus snowboarding. Like I have to travel across the world and that's when I get to see all my friends and peers. So for me, it was difficult because I didn't really have any of my snowboard friends anywhere near me being like at home, but in the culture of snowboarding, most people are friends and skateboarding and all those sports. Like you know, they're competing, but it's not as like intense as like a, a hockey or a different sport okay. because of the culture of it. Like it's all in, at the end of the day, like these sports were created as a way to just have fun. And then all of a sudden they got into the Olympics and all these things. So um, there's something that people like they do for life. Like I still snowboard, but I think someone yeah. who does like track and field might not still do track and field. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, there is a different uh, mindset in that. And I think it's the same in CrossFit because CrossFit, like most people at the gym are just doing it to stay healthy and active with their bodies and mind for everyday life. And so it's something that even if you're not competing becomes part of your lifestyle. So I think both sports are both lifestyle sports. So the communities are very, very similar in that aspect. That's interesting. And then what I noticed is the relationship between the extremity of something like snowboarding, for example, and the level of risk you have to take in every moment. And then we talked earlier how you're a lifelong entrepreneur. Do you see any parallels there or is that a pure coincidence? Yeah, I do think like, um, like I, I like the theory that your body doesn't react any differently to, to stress, like the stress that you get from, oh my gosh, what is this email going to be? Is it like a bad email is the same stress as when we were back in the day running away from like a, a Wolverine that was chasing us, you know, in prehistoric era. So I really like that concept because I think it's, it's pretty similar. Like, you know, I'm about to go hit a jump and I could catch an edge and, and really fall hard versus, you know, I'm taking a risk in my business and there might be some financial loss. So I think with the, the risk that you take in snowboarding, you get really used to taking daily risks and um, just mitigating those risks. So then when you jump into business, yes, there's also that risk, but you have a different mindset about it and you know how to attack it. And you're not, I guess it really depends how you look at financial risk and um, yeah. risk of, of you know your time but for me like one time is the most important to me and two is just like 
achieving my dreams and knowing that, you know, if I lose money in this, this business risk or whatever it is, I have the skills and confidence to like hustle my way out of it. So like if I went broke in my business, I know that there's always something I could be doing. I have the skills to, you know, put food on the table and make money if something went wrong. So having that level of confidence that, um, not that everything is going to be okay, but if it is okay, you're, you'll survive. Or if it isn't okay, you'll be okay. I think is super important because then what, what's so scary about risk? The, the only thing scary is not taking a risk because it's guaranteed failure. What's your earliest memory as an entrepreneur? Um, so yeah, I was always selling things. Um, I used to try to sell things around, around the house to like my family and I would make a uh, PowerPoint presentations. And so what I think is hilarious is I saw on TikTok the other day that there was like two different trends, one PowerPoint presentations and two was, um, is the shark tank challenge or something. I was like, wow, I, I, my family brings this up to everyone, all my friends, when I have new friends over that I was like, you know, a little kid and I would take out the projector, take out my laptop and try to convince them of something with a whole presentation, whether it's like, Hey, I want to go skiing this weekend. I would make a whole presentation and pitch them. I'm like, okay, if we want to go skiing, you said I have to do these chores. So if we all split it like this, then we can go skiing or I pitch them a new business idea or something. So yeah, basically since birth, I've been doing different, different hustles. Like my, um, my dad's an entrepreneur. So he got us, you know, interested in it. And, uh, we used to try to make board games. We wanted to sell board games to like some of the big companies. So we were always inventing new board games. Um, that didn't really pan out. And so then, um, another thing that we did, I think it was about 10 when we did this, and this was like our first kind of legit business, I would say is, uh, we made and sold agility ladders. So like those ladders you run through for uh, sports drills. And at the time Nike was selling them for like a hundred dollars. Like they're very pricey. I don't know. I wouldn't say that the, they were new, but I think they were new to hitting the consumer market because they were more just for like the elite teams. So we figured we can make them for $12 and sell them for 25 based on like some materials we found at this local store. So we would buy the materials in bulk, make that big upfront purchase. Then while we were watching TV, my brother and I, my brother's uh, three years younger than I am, and we would be like cutting them and making the, the ladders. And then we would like take pictures, put them put a, like an ad up that we'd make on PowerPoint um, and put like, you know, those things that you just tear off the phone number and put them up at all the sports arena. So we made a few thousand dollars as kids just doing that. And uh, that really like taught us about the cost of goods sold, all those kind of things. And then from there, I just remember like my, my parents would always send me to school with like a lunch I didn't want to eat. So I would sell uh, gum at school so that I could uh, buy like really good food. I'd buy pizza or cookies, like not good food for you, but food that was better than the healthy food that they would send me to school with. Um, yeah, so I was always doing something like that. Yeah, and now you're focusing more on sports business. And I guess what Staz was saying between general medicine and sports medicine, that, you know, very different i guess that's the same in business right sports business and general business is uh yeah you have to separate those two somehow yeah they're they're different but at the same time they're not so like when yeah. i when i started my first business it was um so well my my still my business but when i first started it my uh, digital marketing agency my first clients were a sports store and um, at the time they had three locations now they have four in an online store um and so it was in that same niche because they were actually one of the, like they were an, a sponsor of mine that then asked me to do all their social media. And then a lot of different clients that I got came to me because of my athletic endeavors, whether they were old sponsors who saw how I was marketing myself 
or just people who knew me through the sporting community. And that's like, that's kind of where I met people, right? Like through the gym, through sports connections. So that was where I got most of my clients. So they ended up being kind of in that niche. But then throughout that whole time, athletes would reach out to me on, on social media and on email and ask me for help with their social media, even like family friends who had kids or neighborhood kids who were becoming really competitive in sport. Or um, I remember my physio, her um, front desk worker's kid uh, needed help with marketing or different things. So all of a sudden everyone was asking me for help um, from the athlete perspective, because not only did I use my social media to get sponsorships when I was coming up as an athlete, but I was also using social media now to get clients. So people really saw that what I had built for my personal brand was really lasting beyond my sport. So I started helping people and just helping people for free, like over those last six years. And even still like anyone who wants help, I just, you know, help them, whether it's writing an email to get a sponsor or uh, different things or just producing content around it. Because as much as what I do in the digital marketing agency, isn't all sport related. Um, I, that's where my passion is. I love to, to help athletes and work with athletes. And that's where I'm seeing myself now coming full circle. I think I kind of distanced myself a little bit from the sport world because everything I had done in my life had been sport. My identity was there that I almost had to go the opposite direction at first to kind of separate myself. And now I'm realizing like I'm in a really good place where it's like all these things I've learned over the last decade could be helping, you know, a young athlete who was in the same position I was, or even a, a professional athlete that was in the same position I was when, before I quit, when, you know, I needed to get those next level sponsorships, I needed to use social media and all these things. So that's, that's my bigger mission beyond what I do in my marketing agency and where I'm really diving into now. And does that ever kind of blend into mentoring young, young athletes? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I've done it formally, but like um, from a non-formal perspective, yeah, like any athlete who reaches out to me, like I just, I just have that, I guess that drive to help them because I know how difficult it was for me as an athlete, like coming up and maybe not having all the opportunities that other people did when their parents were able to pay for all their flights and everything, or, um, or just athletes who, you know, they're getting injured and they need help with their strength and conditioning or different things. Um, that's, that's definitely been something where, or somewhere where I always want to help. And I know when I was snowboarding, I remember just chatting with my coach on the chairlift and thinking about maybe I want to have a sport agency, but like not traditional. I always want to do something different. So I was like, maybe it's like an academy teaching athletes, like the skills they need, how to do stuff themselves. So not just like, Hey, hire an agent while you're a pro and you never learn it yourself, but how about, mm. you know, teaching people the skills that they need and, you know, eventually they'll have their own agent or whatever it is. So yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly where that will lead me if, if that's the path I'm on or what, but I've been really enjoying just talking and helping athletes any way that, that I can. That's good. Yeah. And what has been your biggest challenge and your biggest success in business? My biggest challenge is um, learning how to be a good manager. That is really difficult for me because I wouldn't say that I'm a perfectionist, but I, I like to do things my own way. And so trying to, uh, when you have employees and trying to, I guess, release control as like someone who is very type A is very difficult. Um, really, really difficult. So that's, you know, when I went to school, I went for business management. So you would think that I, I dug really into the, the whole management side and, um, but I think it's something you always have to work on how to be a better leader, how to be a better manager. Um, so that's definitely been a huge struggle for me. So basically you like to keep a close eye on things and ensure that things are being done how you like them done. 
Yeah, which almost, uh, I learned some things the hard way because, you know, when you're in a startup, so when I first started my business, after I retired from snowboarding, the next year, I was like, okay, I'm going all in my business. I hired two employees. And um, yeah, the one one employee was just for a few months. He he came on later, and uh, the other employee was for over a year. He worked with with my agency, and I actually after that year, I decided to scale it back to myself for the next year because I was so stressed from managing people, and it took up all my energy. That it was, I wouldn't say that I was uh, a bad manager in, in any form. Like I think I was, I was very understanding and like, I, I'm actually, I'm like very non-confrontational. So I give people a lot of, a lot of chances and a lot of um, lenience, but um, I, I, I just didn't have those processes and systems set up. But I, like my family likes to tell me, I like to learn things the hard way. Like I have to lose money and make those investments and, and see it go to actually learn it. Because I think if I didn't go through that process of hiring employees perhaps too soon, where, you know, no big mistakes were made, no mistakes were made with clients, nothing like that. But just, you know, it was such a huge toll on me personally. Uh, the stress because I didn't know how to necessarily manage them. I was doing almost double the work. You know, I give them work and then I'd redo it or whatever it is that that's something that I've had to learn, but I had to learn by going through it. So now I feel like I'm in a better place where it's like, okay, now I know I need to build the processes and systems first and have everything sorted out where it's not like I'm building them as we go, because how can I expect people to read my mind? Like you just can't do that. Yeah. Unfortunately. I've been the intern before, so I know how my managers feel now. (laughs) (laughs) And what about your biggest success? Biggest success. Yeah. My, my, my biggest success is just seeing my clients successful. Like I love seeing when I I have an entrepreneur who works with me and works with my business and seeing like their business flourish a year, two years later, how, like how different that it is. I've had a, I had one um, client and she started out being uh, just leaving where she was to starting her own thing. And so immediately she hired me to do all the social media and within a year she had tripled her clients um, you know, largely in part of what she's doing, but largely in part also due to the marketing and everything like that. And then uh, two years after that, she ended up joining uh, and co-founding a larger studio and clinic and w- with another uh, local successful entrepreneur that I-, I had helped in some way when when they started as well. So just seeing that process of, um, you know, from where they are in point A to to where, where they get to with, you know, investing in the marketing and building out their social media presence is really cool for me. Like even right now I have my, my very first client and all their stores are closed because of everything that's going on. But they, they always were early in the game when it came to e-commerce. And then about a year ago, we decided, hey, let's go all in on building out like the ads for the store. Even though we did have the e-commerce, people just used it more to browse what was in store because it was local customers still. Like they had four locations, but they're a family-owned business, very local oriented. So over the winter, we really went all in on marketing across the country to um, different places that didn't have their local sports store. And now that they're closed, we're seeing sales be equal to or or you know, very equivalent to if they were open because everyone is going to their e-commerce site and we've had these ads built out and built that good reputation online. We're having people even outside the city who are purchasing. And so it's, it's been cool to just see that even happen and how the power of having that online presence can save you during a time like now. Yeah. And if you had to shrink it down to a framework and say, okay, like 
just to simplify it. I know it's a case by case scenario, but then do you have like a step one, two, three for athletes wanting to be entrepreneurs and developing that personal brand that they can monetize? Yeah, I, I think it's huge for athletes to start investing in their social media while they're still athletes. Like okay. there's so many opportunities, obviously, as an athlete to build a bigger fan base. Um, people f- really flock to following athletes because it's part of the entertainment industry. And so if they can take advantage of that while they, you know, while they're in sport, that's huge. And then also posting about more than sport. Like when I was um when I was in sport I started posting like my training and behind the scenes that no other snowboarder was no other snowboarder was really interested in fitness how I was so that allowed me to stand out and um you know have an audience that when I switched to CrossFit when I switched to entrepreneurship and posting more about that stuff they were already really receptive of it my audience followed me through I didn't like lose a ton of followers or whatever it is because of that some of them ended up hiring me or whatever it is for whatever I did next because I had already started showing my different passions while I was still, you know, a snowboarder. So I think that's, that's huge. Like you see that even in some of the top professional athletes that they already start posting about like some of the business ventures they're involved in or different things. Um, some of the behind the scenes, the vlogs, people will start following them for who they are as a person and their personality and all the different passions they have when they retire versus the people who just post like once a month, being like hey I won this game it was awesome like and you know that gets a lot of likes because you know it's a cool photo or whatever it is especially if you're a pro athlete but it doesn't build that deeper connection so I think that's the first thing is just even if if you're still in sport start posting about more start sharing the behind the scenes things that people don't you know see and you might you might overlook it because you're an athlete and you think it's not that interesting but it is it is interesting people you know if I if I did one if TikTok was around, I guess, if when I was a snowboarder, I, that, I think that would have been really cool. Like I would have posted all the cool stuff that we got um, at competitions, the behind the scenes, like people dancing in the start line, like how, you know, it wasn't super serious or all those cool things that, because there wasn't even Instagram stories when I was still competing. So we weren't, we couldn't show that. It was like, you know, one curated post a day or whatever it is. So um, that, that would be the, the first main step is to start posting beyond sport and and going more in depth into your personality and all that kind of stuff the second step like when you're making the transition is just give yourself time to figure out what you want because as an athlete you pretty much have lived your whole life knowing that you, you know what you want you have this one main goal and i think that's huge because to, to spend time not knowing what you want because most people live most of their life not knowing exactly what they want to do. What should I take in university? What kind of job do I want? And I think it's valuable to spend time in that process. And um, that's, that's something that it was really difficult for me having that year where I was like, what is my purpose? Like, what am I going to do now? But it, it gave me that, it, it gave me that time to really dig deep and learn the skill of, how do I figure out what my purpose is so that whenever, you know, later in every year or so, or every so often, you know, I have those feelings like, what is my purpose? Am I still on the right track? And I have the skills now to go in and assess and say like, okay, you know what? My business isn't working with the exact clients I want to, so I can pivot or this is this. Um, but if I never have had learned that and I just dived completely in and ignored any of those feelings about, is this what I want to do? Then, you know, it, it could have gone a different direction. So I think just spending time there is really valuable. Amazing. And with regards to finding your purpose, I know you mentioned that time is, is key. 
but it, does it come to you in like a sudden moment or did you keep like a diary did you speak to mentors again friends that are experienced in that field perhaps that gave you that insight about yourself was it yeah I so when I was snowboarding I was really big into journaling and I would say like now I try to do like a gratitude journal but I'm not as big into a and I think it's just like a time thing like I think if, if I had the time that would be something I want to implement but I'm trying to implement so many different habits that you can only work on so many at once but um, yeah I used to journal all the time I'd have all these books and it's cool to look back and actually when I retired from snowboarding I looked back on some of them and saw that I had actually been having the feelings about snowboarding like questioning do I still want to do this and all this stuff years prior but I you know I had those feelings and then the next day I was like no no today was great who cares um, so it was cool to look back and see that so I do think journaling is really valuable because you know, say you have a whole year of journaling and you see like these patterns when you go and review it, you can see, okay, wow, it seems like every few days I've been having this same similar feeling that I'm pushing down or um, this. And so anywhere I go, I usually have like a, a pen um, and a paper and I'm, I'm writing down just different ideas that come into my head and not filtering them. So just writing whatever it is that comes into my, my mind, whether it's about my purpose or just different thoughts that I've had throughout the day, but different ideas with my business. And then I'll, I'll try to set around, set aside some time to actually dive into them. So last year I was in, uh, I went to Bali for a month. And so I had to work the whole time, but I was, because of the 12 hour time difference, I had more time where I was offline and able to dive deeper. So I had already known, like I had been pretty much burning myself out with competitions and work leading up to that. And I was like, okay, this is my time where I can get back to looking at my journal, reviewing all these things that I've written for this last year and seeing, am I still on the right direction? And so after that trip, I switched directions a little bit and put a different focus on what I wanted to do. And then I kind of went through the same thing. Um, uh, like at the end of last year, we had, um, yeah, we just had some different family events and different things ongoing in life that kind of made me like look differently into things. And I started diving deeper again over the holidays and started, you know, 2020 with um, my, my bigger mission of, okay, how can I help more people? Because in my business, I'm working more one-on-one. -on -one, so I realized, you know, what's really important to me is making more of an impact. So I dove into that. And then the other day when I started diving more into like, I want to go back into helping more athletes. I was actually just chilling in the hot tub and thinking about something. And all of a sudden I, I was just staring into the sky for like 30 minutes straight, you know, just sitting there and looking at the stars and all of a sudden, you know, just connections happen. And when I'm yeah. in that moment, like you could talk to me and I don't hear what's happening. Yeah. I'm just focusing, but yeah, so I think it just has to come kind of naturally. You can't really force those types of things, but if you can, write things down and give yourself the time then you probably come to it a little bit sooner than if you're just go 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 and, and never set aside any time to really you know look into those types of things or do any of those exercises where you're writing down ideas yeah i think if i had to compare two things that you've said again between sports being a professional athlete and being a entrepreneur um you know you talked about kind of the fear of injury and i think the closest you can get to that in business is fear of failure but you mentioned immediately like, okay, I know I've got it in me to hustle my way out of any failures. So I'm not really scared of that. So you've immediately eliminated any reason to retire <laughs> as an entrepreneur. So that, that's good. Yeah. And well, I also think for me, like I'm just the personality type that like 
I don't like working for someone else. I'm stubborn and I like to do my own thing and I've always wanted to. So the fear of having to go to, for me, going to a normal job or whatever it is, you know, like when someone says, well, you know, if, entre if entrepreneurship didn't work out, like where would you work? I'm like, no, I would just like hustle something or go to garage sales or like, you know, cause that's just, that's just what I like to do. Like I like to like have to make things happen when I'm when my back's against the wall that's when I I think I'm best so I, yeah it's it's I think that just also comes from just where my passion is like there's some people who are really passionate about baking but if they owned a bakery it might be hell for them so versus I'm really passionate about trying to solve problems through business and if I was taken away from that and not being able to to do that then it would be hell for me <laughs> Do you know, I'm sure you know Gary Vee, but do you also know Ryan Serhant? No, I don't. No, I recommend you check him out. He's written a book called Sell It Like Serhant. Okay. And he really goes through like all these steps that you can take. And it's almost like fail proof. If you, take, if you follow those, it's like, oh my God. Yeah, I should check it out. We, we don't get endorsed, by the way, for any of these. <laughs> <laughs> all good. Yeah, no, I, I will. Any recommendation of books, I will take although I have so many, like they're all around my books all around my house and I have yet to, to finish reading them. I thought during this whole quarantine, I'd have more time to read. And surprisingly, like I, um, I have an app called Blinkist and it's like really quick books, maybe 20 minutes to go yeah, through yeah. a book. I always yeah. see the adverts yeah. on my Instagram. Is it good? Yeah, it is good. So I used to have it. I used to do it on flights all the time. Like I would just listen to tons of different books, but then, um, yeah, I, I canceled it for some reason. I think I was like doing an app cleanse and I was like okay I pay for way too many apps I'm gonna get rid of this one and uh, just get back into diving into books but actually during this whole time I I was like okay I need to be reading more get back into reading and um then things got busy and I've been doing different projects and creating content whatever it is so I I downloaded Blinkist again and uh, got the monthly membership and yeah I've been enjoying it just starting my day if I wake up early while I make my coffee listen to one or two books and I try to um I have like a, on the notes app on my phone, just like put point notes of the main takeaways of the book. So I don't forget about it because, you know, going through a book that quickly, if you don't go back and like review the points then it's almost like you didn't listen to it. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, that's what I've been, what I've been doing with books. So but, that basically yeah. summarizes it in about 20 minutes, what, one book, is that right? Yeah. So I think you can read them or listen to audio. I've never actually read like the short summaries. I just listened to the audio um but yeah it's really quick and i put it on 1.5 speed which is actually what i do with most podcasts or anything and uh and so that they go really quickly and i think yeah it's maybe 20 minutes it might be even shorter when it's on 1.5 i'm not sure but i know like some days if i do it for an hour i can get to like four books yeah i think it's impressive that they came up with that business because uh you, you know to make that scalable you have to literally get someone to read every book and to make you know yeah, it's, it is pretty interesting. For, for me, I think like there's some books that don't really relate. Like I was reading uh, Michelle Obama's book on it and it was like, it was good, but I think because her book is more stories, you would want to actually read it and dive into the stories. Uh, but when it okay. comes to like the business books and like the mindset books, there's always like, you know, for example, seven, um, seven habits of highly effective people where they're going to go over the seven habits and they just might not dive as deep into like the personal examples of the author of how he used the habits, but that's okay. I just want those main, main habits. So listening to the audiobook was really valuable. So for those types of books, like self-development and stuff, I find it really valuable to get the quick takeaways without having to listen to the author's own 
stories, which then actually, if I do really like it through the audiobook, then when I do have time, I'll buy the whole book and read it all through. What I find difficult personally is I love reading self-help books and, uh, you know, motivational books, but once I read one, I need a break. Like I have to read two books about something else and then I come back to another book in that genre, but I can't read two or three books in that genre. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult for me. Well, that is true. And like, I, there was someone, um, kind of like a business mentor of mine who his whole thing was like, you know, everyone's all about learning and reading, reading all these books, but you actually, it's rarely stressful and almost creates anxiety when you have this big gap between what you know and what you actually do on a daily basis. So if you like read all these books and you're like, oh my gosh, I should be doing this, 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 and this, but you're only capable of doing like, you know, whatever you're doing right now or in like making little improvements, you have like this big gap that creates a lot of anxiety and stress versus if you can just like, you know, read one book or learn the next steps, implement them and then get on to the next one. It's probably a much, much better way. That's why usually I go on binges where I read a lot of books and then I have like a month or two where it's like, no, I step away and just try to implement the main things that I learned because if I'm constantly reading, I start not implementing anything that I did read. Yeah. You were saying that stuff, weren't you? Once, that's uh, very true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so true. I think even if you read one book um, in say, I don't know, say six months, but you actually apply everything that you've learned, that's so much more valuable than reading like 50 books in, a, in, in those, like say 25 books in those six months and not applying anything at all because I think it's actually quite rare for people to apply things that you learn from a book because you read it, you kind of forget about it and you don't really come back to it because unless you do something in that moment to start the process, it just, it becomes too far away from your consciousness and you you just forget about it. So I I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a quote, uh, I think it said like, if, if books made you wealthy, librarians would be the richest people, but it, or professors would be the richest people, or something like that. But it they both really apply. Like you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't know how to apply it to each unique situation that you're in, and like practically, then it's it's not worth that much. Other than if you're you're teaching it to other people. One thing I wanted to ask you, Natalie, uh, do you have a morning routine? I do. Yeah, I I do have a morning routine that I try to stick to every day. But you know, it changes, especially I think with this whole quarantine life, it it, it just depends a little bit on the weather and, you know, mood and whatever. But I do have a morning routine that I try to stick to. Um, I try to get up and not stay in bed too long. But sometimes that's difficult. One, because I have a very cute dog and she just wants to cuddle. And two, because uh, working in social media, sometimes like when I I do wake up really early and I have like that time, sometimes I want to get over with checking my emails and checking the social so that I can like move on to the rest of my morning routine and not feel anxious about having those unread notifications. But that's actually probably a bad habit that I've, I've been trying to get out of is like, okay, how would I just chill and realize that no one needs me before, you know, 8 or 9 a.m. Um, but yeah, so I try, I try to get up, try to not do that, but some days it just depends. And um, yeah, I'll get up and start trying to, trying to have a slow morning by waking up earlier. I found I've, I've been waking up earlier during this whole quarantine and um, 
That allows me to have a slower morning instead of feeling stressed about having to start my day right away. And that's like, that's the biggest yeah. stress for me in the morning is if I sleep in and know immediately I have to be on responding to emails, starting my projects, that sets me up for a day of stress and anxiety versus when I have that morning, maybe an hour, an hour and a half where either I can work out in the morning or, you know, I can delay it till later and just have a chill morning where I enjoy my coffee, enjoy my breakfast, don't feel rushed and can do my gratitude journal, meditate, um, do some breath work if I have time and all that stuff. So um, try to do that kind of stuff where I do something that gives to my energy before I actually get into my work is super important because yeah, I do find those days that I sleep in and don't have any sort of morning routine. They, I get really stressed and anxious throughout the whole day and then it creates a whole cycle of it because you know I find on those days and I almost stay up later trying to get more done and then it prevents me from waking up earlier again the next day and so yeah it's really key for me to have a little bit of a slower morning yeah and what time is that time ideal time for waking up for you yeah I'm not a 5 a.m wake person like I can't wake up at 5 a.m it just does not work for me and I'm also yeah I the, the people who wake up at five are well you know I wish I could so when I actually last year when I came back from Bali so it, when you're when you're there the roosters are so loud in the morning uh the, the sounds are so loud in the morning because usually most places are like villas and because it's so warm there's not like really like soundproof places a lot of them like have open windows or whatever it is and um, the sun goes down really early and it comes out like really, really early as well. So I find you go to bed pretty early unless you're going out or whatever. And then you wake up really early. So when I came back, I said, I'm going to keep doing that. And with the 12 hour time change, I'm like, I'm sure it's going to be easy for me to transfer. That lasted maybe like two weeks. And then I realized like just my body's natural circadian rhythm and everything is not, it's not yeah. to be a 5 a.m. person. Like I actually find when I wake up at 5 a.m., I have like, my stomach feels weird. Like, mm. it's, I don't know, it's really odd because it doesn't matter how early I go to bed to try to wake up at 5 a.m. I wake up and I don't feel like I need, I want to eat in that early. I, like my whole body feels weird. I feel groggy. But if I can wake up like 6.30 is probably the earliest to like 7-ish, like in that range. And then if I do go to bed like too late, then I might delay it till 7.30. But like that range is really good for me. And I think, I think that's important because, um, you know, if, if I went to, if I was like, if I went to bed at 11 or something, then I would never want to make myself wake up at five because I think sleep is so important. So um, just the way that I naturally work and what I like to do in the evening and everything, it just makes sense for me to wake up around that time. So I'd say like seven is probably the normal time. What keeps you awake at night? Yeah, I think one of the things that probably keeps me up at night is like not, I guess, not being where I want to be. And it's not like I'm not, I, I'm happy where I am now. But if I look in five years from now, I want to be somewhere much further. And five years from then, I want to be somewhere much further. So what keeps me up at night is like the fear of like next year being in the same place, like same place mentally, same place uh, with with success in my business, same place. Um, with everything so I, I find like I'm pretty patient about the process where it's like okay put your head down do the work every day and the results will come but that's like something that keeps me up at night is always worrying like okay am I doing all the right things that's gonna make the you know move the needle a year from now am I am I actually making a big change because I know just like you know our time is limited we don't actually have all that much time and so 
I want to just make sure that I'm, I'm using it to the best and, and not wasting all of a sudden I look back five years and realize I didn't make you know, the progress I wanted to. If you had a choice between going back at any point in time or going in the future, which one would you choose and why? Um, uh, you know what, when I think that, I think when I was younger, I would say the future because I, as a kid, you're like, I can't wait to be older. But now looking back, I think I would rather go back because going into the future and then say coming back wouldn't help me at all. It almost like, it almost demotivate you to do what you need to do in the moment, I think, even if it's good or bad. If it was bad, like you might almost feel like, well, I can't control that because I just saw the future or whatever it is. But if, if I could just go back and enjoy some different moments that were awesome moments in my life, I think that'd be really cool. Not to change anything, but just, you know, enjoy those different moments versus I think just let the unknown be the unknown. And if you were to leave a room, what would you want the people in that room to think about you? What are the top three things? Um, I think the first thing is to think that I'm genuine. I think that's really important for me is, is especially like I'm someone who always tries really hard at whatever they do. And I think growing up, that was almost like a negative, not, not a negative in a way, but I think there's a lot of a different perception that, you know, like it's cool not to try hard. And for me, it's like, no, I think it's cool to try hard and put yourself mm. out there. Um, but I just want, like, I think that's something that I worry about all the time is like, I want people to know that it like comes from a really genuine place. And because I really do want to help people and then, you know, really passionate about whatever I do. It's not like me forcing whatever I do. I'm not really forcing myself to do something. I, I follow whatever I'm passionate about. Um, yeah. The second thing is, I mean, the second thing is probably less about what, what they think about me, but it would just be, I, I want anyone that I interact with to, um, like feel good about themselves. Like that, that's something that I work on a lot is that uh, I think that all of us in our lives could improve on how we answer other people's questions um, or like what we say to other people, because there's things that I say and I could, you know, say about, I don't know, something that I've done well or something that might make someone feel bad about where they're at or yeah. what they're doing. And so I've been trying to be more mindful of like, how will this person take it? in the way that it motivates them. Like I have, sometimes there's people um, like, for example, on like an Instagram post or my TikTok or something and they tell me they're like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, your lift of what 150 pounds or something is heavy. Like my best lift is 200 and it's like, okay, well I don't have to tell them that my best lift is 300 or something and this was just like me training. I could just type them up and be like, that's awesome. Like 200 is great, but that's, that's like it's difficult I think because you almost feel defensive like you need to prove yourself to everyone yeah. and so that's that's my biggest one is like something that I'm really working on is just you know I, I, other people remember how you make them feel not how impressive whatever you are doing is so I don't need to to hype myself up I think what's most important is hyping other people up um yeah. and then the the third one oof, it'd be tough I think I think the the most important would just people think that um I guess that I'm kind I think that's important is 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 one you you make other people feel good um you know people you come uh from a place of of genuineness and authenticness and that you're you're kind to people I think is important I you know if someone thinks I'm cool or someone thinks I'm smart or whatever that's it's not really in my control because who I am is who I am. And, uh, but how I can make other people feel is more something that I can control with, with how I speak to people. 
Yeah, I definitely get all those things, like those vibes from you. And I think with the second point, it's really important because, you know, if, if you, you always continue to lose if you feel the need to win, right? And uh, oh, I think that, I like that. yeah, I think yeah. that's also what you said, kind of with the feeling of, of taking a step back and putting a spotlight on someone else that takes, you know, courage, I'd say, because you don't know how how to do that sometimes right you need to kind of find that in yourself on the spot in that moment so I think that's that's like the biggest thing I need to work on I think like it's something I work on all the time like I find myself so reactive that in two seconds I'll be like in defensive mode to to you know just something where it's like I feel like I have to prove myself and say like no this is my max or this is this and so just trying to take it is so difficult yeah Yeah. so i've been trying to like take a step back don't respond right away and then Mm -hmm. think of like hey wait you don't have to like tell people that you're cool if they're already following you or whatever they already think that you just need to you know how can you make their day better yeah yeah that's amazing and do you want to do some word associations so sure let's do it part of the Martin always comes up with a very interesting choice of words that you want Oh, gosh. Yeah, go on, Saz, you go first. <laughs> so I just say okay. whatever word I'll comes to first. mind in association to the word? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. And I'm basically saying the words that come to my mind as well. So oh, we're, we're doing the same thing, really. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, let's go for skiing. Snow. Apple. Bottom, like the apple bottom jeans. I don't know why that song came into mind. Marketing. Business. Business. Tips. Motivation. Psychology. Challenge. Thought. I don't know why that just came into my head. (laughs) Home. Feeling. Goals. Gold. Success. Motivation. History. Legend. Cool. <laughs> That's interesting. Like yeah. to think to see which ones came. I think that the best one was when you said Apple, I immediately st- thought of the song Apple Bottom Jeans, <laughs> Boots with the Fur. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, so you actually, you actually did it really well because uh, whatever came to mind, you just said it straight away. Whereas um, normally we get a lot of hesitation and uh, yeah, so that was really good actually. <laughs> well, I, I tried to, to play it by the rules. But they were easy, Stas. Like, yeah. yeah. I remember that one time Stas said, um, <laughs> what was it Stas? You said something like, you said like some weird food. I can't remember what it was. Chinese food or something like that you said and then the person was like what? <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Um so yeah no it was uh obviously really good chatting I think uh, we learned a lot and um I'm not sure if there's any more kind of tips you want to share or we can maybe jump on an Instagram live next week and we can have like a follow up on this once we get a few comments back and it's always enlightening to see what what's happening out there and for example for me like i don't really follow winter sports and then you know we have this chat and i'm looking into kind of 
Well, actually, I do follow winter sports because my family's Croatian. I know one of the best ever skiers is Croatian, Kostelic, so I do know that. Mm. But I um, generally with extreme sports, I don't tend to follow them and to know who's who's the best at any point in time. I'm not sure about you, Stas. So it was interesting to learn a lot from you and no, see, I, 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 yeah. you know, the psychological effects and what happens after you retire because there's so much adrenaline in that and then you kind of lose it once you retire and then you have to kind of put that invest that energy into something else otherwise like you said you're gonna get anxiety issues and stuff like that so yeah actually in the the book the power of now i think he uh eckhart toll i don't know it's toll or tolle but he he talks about that he actually says like people use extreme sports as a way to like force them into the moment and that was interesting to see like in his book that's you know a new york times bestseller and very well read that he actually mentioned um you know people using that as a way to escape and so yeah it's it's interesting you're the ninth person to mention that book to me so i have to (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's a very yeah yeah, it's a deep book yeah I think that was really good. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. And I, actually, I've never, I've never actually said this before, Martin, and you can uh, back me up on this. But I think this was was one of our uh, best podcasts. Actually, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I enjoyed it like one of the like the most. Like it's been one awesome. of the better, one of the best ones. Yeah, no, oh, we, we, we've had that. some. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've had some big ones, haven't we, Stas? So this is definitely. I mean. The only other question I'd have is, you know, you said that you help people with sponsorship letters and stuff like that. I mean, what what would be your biggest piece of advice to someone who maybe isn't from an English speaking country? Maybe they're from uh, a different culture where sports is frowned upon. You know, I'm reading some books at the moment um, with kind of political ideologies and mm-hmm. talking about different cultures around the world where maybe sports yeah. isn't what your family your family want you to go into. And a lot of people right. try to kind of break into it because it's, it's like a passion, right? But it's difficult for them. So what would be your advice to maybe these more extreme cases? Um, yeah, like, like when it comes to writing like a sponsorship proposal or sponsorship level, and yeah, especially when you don't have these connections or you don't have any of these things, like the, the main key is like you have to sell your story, or your journey. Like when I had, when I was approaching sponsors, like there's, there's athletes who were already very successful in snowboarding or whatever it is, and they could easily have gotten those sponsors. Um, and they could easily have made those same, same connections if they put themselves out there and they were, you know, maybe getting more eyes within the snowboarding world itself. So my whole thing was like approaching a company, telling them, you know, understanding that they need value. So I'm not just saying like, Hey, I need money. Can you give me money? It's not really going to help because they have probably like a hundred or a thousand people asking them for the same thing. So it's about like, okay, Hey, I see you guys are trying to build a brand here. I think there's a lot of athletes here that I have am connected with or snowboarders or people who are interested in this, that would be also interested in your product because we have similar brand values or they're, you know, my journey is similar to the journey of your company or your brand. And so just saying like, Hey, um, you know, I had a supplement company and I, I was like, you know, I'm, um, really into strength and conditioning and the importance of that as a snowboarder I came from this um you know I work on my gym skills and all these things and being strong to help me in my snowboarding and I think that there's even though I'm not the best snowboarder in the world the other snowboarders in the world aren't training like how I am and so you guys don't have any sponsors or sponsorships in snowboarding I could get you guys into this audience and um share using your product behind the scenes with my snowboarding so you really have to dive into you know 
selling your journey and your process and showing people, especially if you're not the best or you don't have all these connections or money, like, you know, just be honest with people of where you're at, where you want to go and how joining you now and following for the whole journey is going to be beneficial to them. Yeah, I think a lot of what you just said there relates to this Netflix documentary series that I'm watching. It's called The Last Dance. It's oh, like, yeah, it's good. Uh, you're watching it. Yeah, it's really good. And I yeah. think w- one of the best things that you said there resonates with, with me uh, when I saw Rodman's episode, um, because obviously he's such a controversial character. You know, he tried to marry himself. He was dating Madonna. <laughs> he tried to kill himself. There were so many ups and downs with this guy. And he was such a such a good basketball player. Like he was one of the best defensive jumpers in, in history of, of the NBA. And yeah. to see how he approached um, the game and what made him the best, it wasn't like natural talent. I mean, maybe it was a bit of natural talent, but he worked so hard. Like, you know, he put himself in a quiet room. He'd study the players. You saw him writing it down. He'd, he was like homeless and just going to the gym and whatever. Yeah, he had so many things that kind of made him stand out. And that story, I think, is what, might might entice some brands to say hey like you know we want to work with you because you're a different character to jordan jordan belongs with nike but maybe we we need someone like you who's outspoken who's you know there not scared of anything and and unless you know rodman obviously he's famous but someone like him was to tell them the story and to showcase it i don't think that pairing would happen right so I think what you just said is yeah. very important because you know you don't have to be like following anyone else's journey it's your journey could be enough right so yeah I think that's so applicable to anyone's personal brand like yeah. athletes are not too it's like you know everyone there's tons of people who are doing marketing or tons of people who are you know snowboarding or whatever it is but there's a unique story behind why you do what you do and the journey that got you to where you are as well as where you're going that you know, if you can convey that well, it's going to help you with you know, building an audience, you know, getting sponsorship, whatever it is. Amazing. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Nice. Listen, we wish you all the best. I think uh, it's, it's clear that you're on a good path and, you know, keep working hard, keep hustling, keep keep trying to improve. And I think, yeah, got, got that can-do attitude and winning mentality. <laughs> I think you obviously brought that in from sports, which which is very good. And I think a lot of athletes have that naturally as well. So if you can awake that somehow in them, help them transform it into something that's that's more scalable into a business, let's say. I think that's-